0: You're not the boss of me now, and you're not so big. Welcome to Life is Unfair, the Milk in the Middle podcast, where we watch and talk about every episode in chronological order. Today, we're talking about Jury Duty, which originally aired May 1st, 2002, was directed by Ken Kwapis, written by Bonnie Landrum, Tom Mason, and Dan Danko. Hi, I'm Jake, and I've tried me. I taste awful. And I'm David, and why isn't there ever a flash flood when you need one? Well, before we get into this week's episode, we have our community segment, Looking Back on Poker 2. We've got some poll results, which for least shitty kid in a rare turn of events, David chose Malcolm for uh, calling Reese out on his shittiness and trying to deal with the gun, although in a stupid way. Whereas I chose Dewey for ratting Reese out and just generally having a bad time and being pushed past his limits. And the
1: internet agreed with
0: both of us. We have a tie between Malcolm and
1: Dewey. Nice. I'm glad to see that there's at least half of the internet that is brilliant.
0: Uh, Well, not quite half because we did have one outlier vote for Francis.
1: Ah, goddamn Josh from Des Moines.
0: And for uh, Shittiest Kid, we both chose Reese for uh, manipulating Chandra sort of on the behalf of Stevie and and then like creepily spying on them.
1: Yeah, this one seems obvious, right?
0: Uh, you, You might think so, but only half of the internet agreed with us. Reese did win, but he only got half of the vote. With Dewey earning 33% of the vote and Malcolm earning a single outlier vote. Okay. That does it for our community segment. Let's get to this week's episode. Which starts with a cold open of Hal stepping out into the backyard. And he sort of looks down at the ground and something catches his eye. So he goes over to the swing set and digs up a broken piece of his bowling trophy. Uh, sort of like the top half of the dude that would be at the top of the trophy. Uh, clearly broken off. And then uh, seeing this and holding it up, he continues digging around the area. And he immediately finds part of a broken uh, Peter Frampton record. And you know, upon finding this, he starts a... Full, like, gridded out, proper dig in the backyard to find everything that the boys have destroyed and buried there.
1: Yeah, it looks like he's getting ready to, like, build a new foundation or something. It's crazy.
0: It looks like a proper, like, uh, archaeological dig site.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it does. You're not wrong.
0: And to help sell this, he even, uh... Like, has a little, like, pie pan that that he, like, pulls up and and he's, like, shaking it to, you know, sift the dirt away from any potential artifacts that might be in there. True. And the artifact he finds is his broken watch, which he holds up and, like, you know, talking and sort of, as the boys, you know, saying, Oh, we didn't even know you had a watch, Dad! Then, the boys, like, peek around the corner and, and see this, and Malcolm immediately says... Uh, thank God they paved the driveway last year.
1: Ah, uh, yes. I see now. I'm just curious as to what they buried under the driveway.
0: Fair. They buried everything, David. Everything
1: that I believe.
0: Getting into the episode proper, we will of course begin with the F plot. Of course, which starts with Francis's former bunkmates all together. Getting ready for their trip to go ice fishing. Uh, Pete says it combines his two favorite things: ice and holes. Somehow, I believe that. And uh, it was pretty on brand for Pete.
1: Yeah, like there's not many people who I would think weren't trying to make a dirty joke there. I think Pete just really likes ice and holes. Yeah, he's got the opposite of whatever that tricked uh, whatever the 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 phobia of holes. Yeah. Pete's got the opposite. Yeah. Yes.
0: And Artie starts, like, talking about how, you know, it's it's this big man-versus-nature thing, and all of this, and then he asks if they can cut the crust off of his the sandwich. Then Francis comes in and tells them he hopes that they brought enough toilet paper for four, as he's going. And when Eric asks him how he got Piyama to give him permission to go, uh, Francis says, I don't need my wife's permission to go. I tricked her into a fight, so she kicked me out of the house for a couple days. Then, we get them at the little hut on the ice, where they're fishing, and they are all immediately bored. Francis is immediately complaining, and, uh, you know, they're saying that they're not even getting any fish, (laughs) and Pete says that he's been ice fishing for 20
1: years and he's never even seen a fish it's uh, a terrible track record. You need to you need to change something.
0: <laughs> and Artie agrees with Francis. He says he was bored just from the drive down here. So Francis suggests that uh, since they're all here anyway, that they may as well at least talk. And immediately, Eric starts telling them the story about the time he walked in on his dad's having sex. Then Artie is telling them the, the story of how... Uh, that they had to surgically remove the vestiges of his unborn twin brother. It wasn't a boil. Uh, everyone else is, is like, visibly uncomfortable from this story. And Francis says, uh, you know, we, we should just leave. And, uh, everyone agrees and they all start packing up and Francis is the first one out the door. And he immediately comes back in, slamming the door behind him, saying there's a huge bear out there. Initially, Artie is, like, very dismissive of this. He says, uh, it's part of living in Alaska, there's grizzly bears all over the place. And Eric a- asks Francis, you know, how far away is it? And as soon as he asks that, the shack, like, starts rumbling, and the- there's the-, the sound of bear growls, you know, clearly right outside of the shed. And everyone except for Pizza is, like, freaking out and, uh, you know, uh, watching, like, the, the shelter walls shake, then after that, Pete just asks, So are you going to answer his question? <laughs> then, when we come back, they've been trapped, you know, presumably for a while, and they're sort of discussing what to do, and Pete tells them that, you know, he's, he's been around a lot of bears, they don't need to worry. Uh, They they just need to, you know, stay here and stay quiet and wait it out till it flies away. Unless it's protecting its eggs. And Francis says that one of them should run for help. They They should just, you know, run out of the shed and sprint to the truck. And Artie points out that this is, you know, suicide for whoever goes. But Francis is insistent that they should do it and Eric agrees. And the second Eric says that he agrees, Francis nominates him to be the one
1: to go and do it. Which, of course, Eric is not happy about. Well, yeah, I mean, he doesn't want to have to outrun the bear, he just wants to outrun his slowest friend. Fair enough.
0: Eric then, uh, you know, nominates Artie, saying that he's the camp outcast, he should be the one to go, and Artie nominates Pete, saying, you know, he's a crazy old coot, he's lucky to have lived as long as he has. And they descend into just full-blown arguing over who should have to go out there. As one does when
1: you're around Francis. You argue.
0: Yeah, he does bring that out of people. Then, when we come back to them, they're still having the same argument. Artie says, you know, he may be fat and uneducated and dyslexic, uh, but at least he doesn't have three nipples. And Eric immediately says, that's a mole.
1: Yeah, rude.
0: (laughs) And uh, Eric says, you know, it should be Pete because no one will miss him because his own family changed their last name so that he couldn't find them. Clearly not getting anywhere, they decide to take a vote. And they go around, starting with Eric, and every time they vote, having everyone raise their hand if they think, you know, the person who's up should go. Everyone except that person raises their hand. Until they get to Pete, and when they ask who thinks Pete should go, everyone, including Pete, raises their hand. So they send him out while he screams at them to stop and says that they tricked him, but he lost the vote, so he has to go, and they very quickly force him out the door and slam it shut behind him. And after a few seconds where there's no sounds, the truck starts up and pete drives away leaving them behind yelling out calling them uh backstabbers as he abandons them makes sense yeah and that's how the f plot ends so from there we will go to the b plot the plot centered around the boys it starts with dewey setting in their bedroom with a backpack and stuff, very, uh, looking like very disappointed and just dejected as Reese and Malcolm come in, looking very excited, and he immediately tells them that they were supposed to explore the sewers today, and they're late, and, you know, he's upset with them, but they keep insisting that, you know, this great thing happened, and that's why they, uh, weren't there, and... Reese explains that the the reason they weren't there is they went to Stevie's to get supplies to explore the sewer. And when they did, they saw his mom naked.
1: Yeah.
0: says that she she was out in the hall and they turned around and they saw her and she screamed and then Stevie screamed and then I screamed. Why did I do that? Yeah. And Dewey is very dismissive of this. Says that's not a good reason for them to have missed their, you know, plans. Their, uh, little tradition. Because he says that Lois is naked around the house all the time.
1: That's probably way too true.
0: Uh, We we saw it way back in season one.
1: Yep, we sure did. And
0: Vries says he's gonna beat Dewey up if he got those two ideas uh, mixed together in his head. And he sort of closes his eyes and says, Nope, you're good. Then... We see them uh, at the tunnel entrance to the sewers. Is that They're headed there. Dewey is very excited, talking uh, about how, you know, he's heard that there's alligators in the sewers, but that's not true. But if there was, they'd be blind and albino and maybe translucent, but that's
1: not real. <laughs> he keeps bouncing back and forth between that, like, excited of, man, maybe I get to see a translucent alligator, to, no, that can't be real. That's not true.
0: Yes. Then Malcolm goes over to Reese and he sort of talks about how, you know, uh, doing this for Dewey reminds him of when Francis brought them to the sewers for the first time. And it actually makes him feel kind of good to do this for Dewey. And then he asks, so did you get it? And Reese opens his backpack to show that uh, he has a snake and they laugh about how scared Dewey is going to be when they sick this snake on him. Then yeah, <laughs> then Reese talking to like a couple other kids who are like gathered around this uh, sewer tunnel, which apparently is like the local teen hangout spot. Apparently,
1: which is weird, but okay.
0: And he is uh, telling them the story about seeing Kitty naked, and uh, as he's describing it, Stevie comes up behind him. And Malcolm, like, motions, you know, to to let Reese know to stop talking about this because Stevie's right there. Instead, Reese turns to Stevie and says, Yeah, you were there, Stevie. That's exactly what she looked like, right? Yeah. Then, uh, as they're going into the tunnel, Malcolm tells Reese, you know, "You're, You're talking about Stevie's mom. You should probably lay off in front of him. Show some class. Which Reese does by, as he's... Uh, going into the tunnel with Stevie so he takes like a
1: big sniff and he says Uh, oh, is that the sewer is that you Stevie yeah yeah definitely uh, definitely understands what that means to lay off
0: going into the tunnels Malcolm points out that they've reached what he thinks is their mark it's the furthest they've ever been into the sewers before it's as far as they ever got with Francis and Dewey is underwhelmed says that, this is the furthest you ever got why would you brag about this Then, taking a closer look at the mark, Malcolm says, wait, this isn't our mark. Unless we thought that some lady named Molly Hatchet ruled. Reese says, no, this has to be the spot. And he goes through, you know, all the directions that they went. And then Malcolm says, no, that's not the directions we took. And he gives, you know, a different uh, set of turns. And then Stevie starts to do the same. And Malcolm realizes that they are lost. Uh, But when he says this, uh, Risa immediately says, Oh no! And then Dewey starts, like, blowing up at them. You know, complaining about how every time they try to do something, and it goes wrong, even when they try to be nice to him, something bad happens. And... Reese, like, turns to Malcolm and sort of laughs and says, Yeah, he's gonna freak out thinking that we're lost, and then we'll pants him. And Malcolm says, No, Reese, we're really lost. And Reese immediately freaks out. Then uh, we, we, we get a little bit between Stevie and Reese. You know, Reese is talking about how uh, they need to get out of these tunnels because Stevie's mom is gonna be worried about him. Quit talking about my mom. And Reese says, you know, he's just interested in her. Like, he wants to know if she ever went to college. I bet she was in a sorority. And Stevie calls Reese a perv. Then when, when, you know, Stevie calls him a perv, Reese says, you know, it's perfectly normal for him to uh, have an interest in the opposite sex. And Stevie says, well, they don't return the favor. And immediately, Malcolm and Dewey both side with Stevie. Malcolm calls him a joke. And Dewey says, yeah, yeah it's true. Even I know it. <laughs> and they all sort of walk away while Reese just sort of stands there looking stunned.
1: Yeah. freaking Malcolm, man. You're a joke. Re- re- really, Malcolm? Should we talk about your endeavors in romance?
0: <laughs> well, very shortly, Reese will. <laughs> As they walk through the, the sewers, you know, looking for a way out, completely lost. They're, you know, initially talked about, you know, how to get out. But then Reese just sort of out of nowhere says, Every girl you've ever dated left you crying to Malcolm.
1: Yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's true. <laughs> and uh,
0: Ma- Malcolm says, I didn't cry that much. And Stevie immediately says, you wet your pants. Uh, Ma- Malcolm You know, now on the defensive, throws it back at Stevie and says, you've never even been with a girl. And Stevie says he has a note from his doctor, (laughs) which prompts Reese to say he could get a doctor if he wanted. Dewey, you know, as they, like, turn on each other and start to argue, says that girls don't like any of them and he doesn't blame them. And the boys immediately become incels.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Now mm. uh, just immediately turn to, you know, now shitting on girls, to, talking about how they don't find farts funny, and
1: uh, all they want to do is shop, and they're always crying. I disagree with all of these statements, but I'm curious if Malcolm understands how much he is just describing himself and not women.
0: Uh, well, Malcolm has zero self-awareness, so not at all.
1: That, as, as we've proven with the... Look, all I could all I could think of when I was watching this was like, "Oh my god, these guys are shitters." But also, Malcolm's kind of just talking about himself because, like, all the shit Malcolm mentions that quote girls do is all the shit he does. <laughs> I'm like, does he not really? <laughs> Fair enough. W- when we
0: come back, they have uh, shifted from you know blaming girls for everything, and uh, they're getting a bit more introspective. And sort of analyzing why they have their problems. Uh, Reese says that he's worried that girls are going to hurt his feelings, so he hurts them first. Uh, Malcolm says he gets frustrated by not being able to control everything. And he forgets that the you know girls are humans but with their own needs. And Stevie says he plays mind games, because that's all he has. Reese says that you know he he wants a girlfriend that you know he could really connect with and you know maybe even share his poems with and they're all shocked that uh, Reese writes poetry and he says you know he dabbles and he uh, says he, he wants to read one of his poems for them and he takes his backpack and he opens it up forgetting about the snake inside. <laughs> that they had brought to scare dewey and he immediately like screams as the thing like comes out of the backpack and it also you know prompts malcolm and stevie to scream and they all go running and, and of course you know now that they're not trying to find their way out and just running in a panic they immediately run out of the sewer tunnels where a group of girls are standing and laughing at them and apparently have heard like everything that they were just saying Well, one of them, who is played by Ashley Tisdale, Mm -hmm. uh, immediately, you know, uh, turns to Reese and says, what, did you uh, read one of your poems to them? And Dewey comes out of the tunnel, holding the snake, saying, you guys can't even do
1: this right. Dude, did I ever tell you about my snake story? Uh, I don't think so. Uh, To be fair, I have a couple of them. But, uh, the one that this made me think of is, uh, so i i can't go into a ton of detail obviously because it's a it's a work story gotcha but uh it was it's been several years now but we were doing a search and if you've ever seen what we call coffin beds they're these they're basically like these metal bins and the part where the mattress is on literally like lifts up on hinges on the back side and then all of your like property storage and everything is underneath where your mattress is and it lifts up on hydraulic pistons that hold it up and uh well you have a top bunk and a bottom bunk well i went to go search one of the bottom bunks and i i popped the lock and i lift that coffin bed portion up and so like at this point i'm on my knees right so i'm i'm very close to the ground and my face is probably i don't know two three feet off the ground is all because you're kind of leaned over you know you're you're gonna be searching stuff and i open it up and there is a snake staring directly at me inside this dude's property <laughs> i immediately indiana jones the hell out of that i slammed the thing shut i <laughs> got i went nope no 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 i went and got a pair of gloves uh like the thick work gloves and fortunately it just turned out to be a little garter snake right and so i was able to like scoop it up and take it outside and let it loose but oh my god i i I don't know that I have ever moved that fast before in my life, nor will I ever move that fast again. Oh my God, dude! it was the worst. Cause I mean, like it literally, it, it did that little thing that, you know, they do where it lifts its head up and like flicks its tongue, tasting the air. It, it did that as I opened it. And you know, I was leaning down to start the search. So we were literally like, I, I probably could have extended my tongue and touch this fucking snake <laughs> it was <laughs> the creepiest thing to run across unexpectedly
0: <laughs> yeah fair enough
1: and that's that's just the minute that uh, Reese forgot about the snake and opened the backpack that's that's what I thought of
0: yeah understandable I've never really been in a uh, close proximity uh, surprise snake situation but I don't imagine it would be great really? you never? not really like I've come across them like on trails and stuff but that's about it
1: and you've never like spooked dude. I have so many stories of like spooking rattlesnakes and like them going one way and me going the other way. Yeah, especially hanging out at Natural Bridge as a kid. Dude, like Ugh. Yeah, no, not not really. I almost dude, I almost had a rattlesnake fall on top of me from that little like rock ledge that overhangs the uh the river there at Natural Bridge when we were swimming when we were kids. Ugh. The amount of times that I have been close to water moccasins and rattlesnakes, dude, <laughs> is alarming. I've had a snake crawl over me before.
0: That sounds awful.
1: Oh, it was terrible, but you don't move. Right. Because if you do, you're definitely getting bit. Right. Yeah, no, I was in, uh, I was in BDUs and stuff, and uh, I was laying down next to a tree with a, a rifle uh, trained on a uh, group of dudes who were coming to, to kick the crap out of us. And uh, I make that sound way worse. It was, it was airsoft. It was military simulation airsoft. And all of a sudden, I just feel something, like, moving over my leg. And I look back, and I can see the head of the snake as it's, like, going into its hole, which is under the tree that I'm right next to. And I had to wait until, like, the tail went. And I was so happy when I saw no rattle on the tail. And then, uh, (laughs) like, I had to just lay there because I couldn't move. If I got up and moved, I I would be, like, destroyed with BBs. So I had to lay there until the truck went by, and then I stood up and shook myself off, and it was awful. Anyways, snakes and I, wild, don't mix. We are always together. Uh, if there's a snake, I will find it. Don't worry. It sounds like you do mix. We mix way too much, <laughs> but not well.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I, I think, like, the, the closest I've ever been is, like, a, you know, like a, at least a couple of feet away at any given time. <laughs> I wish. I... Wish. Well, like, the, the, the closest thing to an experience like that I've had is, like, the, you know, you know the, the, the thing of, like, thinking, like, there's a branch in the path, like, ahead, and then it turning out to be a snake, but...
1: There was the cottonmouth, the elephant rocks, there was the field of cottonmouth that somehow I didn't get bit... Dude, I've had way too many snake encounters. Okay. Ugh. Just thinking about it, more of them start coming up. Oh, my God. Ugh. <laughs> uh. <laughs>
0: I've had more bad encounters with squirrels.
1: <laughs> Dude, I've never had an issue with squirrels, all right? Squirrels are your friend. No, no, they're not. I've had one, yeah, I've had are. one
0: jump on me.
1: I've had them try to bite me. I've had
0: them throw things at me. Uh, that's because they can sense your fear, Jake. to be fair, like the the, the 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 squirrel jumping on me as a kid is where the, like the whole phobia of squirrels started.
1: Yeah. He was marking you. <laughs> you pissed him off, and now he's marking you. So all other squirrels moving forward are like, that's the guy. Fuck that guy in particular.
0: No, uh, no, no. Squirrels just in general are, are assholes. Like, especially if you get, like, squirrels and like, areas where they're not used to being around people, they're fucking awful.
1: Literally have never had that problem. I have been out in the boonies deep, deep, deep. In the country, man, where no one ever goes, squirrels never. Now I've had gophers that are assholes. I have had snakes. I have had antelope, believe it or not, or pronghorns, whatever you want to call them. Yep. Uh, those guys can be real pricks. True. I have never had a problem with squirrels, bro. No,
0: you, you get up like up north, like like when my parents were living like on the Canadian border. Uh huh. The, the squirrels up there were like extremely territorial and like hyper aggressive.
1: Right but they're a rodent.
0: Yeah, but when you get like 20 to 30 of them, like they they, they <laughs> swarm. And they they like throw stuff, they attack. A little known squirrel fact is squirrels are omnivores. They they will kill and eat things and do. Like especially like baby birds and stuff.
1: That is true. They they will kill and eat things, but also I feel like you're a little too scared of squirrels still. <laughs> they're creepy. They don't move right. I don't like it. <laughs> They're a bad animal. I like that this is where the podcast has gone. <laughs> you're welcome, audience. We have devolved into just <laughs> nature stories now.
0: Uh-huh. <laughs> I think squirrels might legitimately be the only animal
1: I hate. How how in the hell are sharks out there existing and you're like, nah, nah, those are fine. Yeah. Fuck squirrels.
0: Yeah, 100%. I understand sharks. They
1: make sense. No, they don't.
0: Nah, sharks are cool.
1: I hate you. Alright, can we get back to the podcast now? Uh, I'm sorry, internet. I'm trying to keep him on track.
0: Are you? Are you? <laughs> I'm pretty sure they want to start at the tangents.
1: I Look, I was telling a story, which I've come to understand. People like my stories, Jake.
0: Look, I, I'm not saying that they don't. I'm just saying you started the tangents.
1: Alright, so where are we? You're the one with the outline here. Because if you leave it to me, I'm just going to be rambling.
0: <laughs> We're going to the L plot. Okay. Which the H-plot spins out of. Correct. They start off together. They both start with Lois getting called in for jury duty, which Hal is very upset about. He immediately tells her that she needs to tell them no.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, spring break's getting ready to start. He can't be expected to be alone with the boys. (laughs) And I second that thought.
0: And when Lois says that, you know, that's not how it works, you can't just tell them no, Hal gets, like, a very, like, smug look on his face as he says, you know, you just leave that to me. You want to get out of jury duty. I'll get you out of jury duty.
1: Cut to Lois in jury duty. <laughs> yep. Uh, Which, by the way, for those following along and listening to the previous episodes, I definitely have seen this episode, but not all of it. Literally, I we just showed the jury duty portion of Lois in jury duty. So I had seen that section of this episode before.
0: That's sort of kind of where, where the two split off as, uh, the rest of the episode, it's sort of focused on Lois's, you know, time with the jury while, uh, events for Hal will sort of, uh, spiral out from there. That's, that's a fair way to put it. But the, uh, Jury, which the uh, jury foreman is played by uh, George Weiner, who is like a a character actor who's just been around for forever. He was in Spaceballs.
1: Yep. I immediately recognized him. Did not know his name.
0: Fair enough. Uh, I I also immediately recognized him from my favorite scene from A Serious Man. He plays uh, Rabbi Nockner, and he tells the, the story of the goy's teeth. Which is maybe my favorite scene in, like, any Coen Brothers movie ever. It's fantastic. But he is uh, having the jury vote, and it is a split vote. Uh, I I think there's five who vote uh, not guilty, and seven who vote guilty, with Lois being one of them. And Lois, you know, immediately starts, when he reads the votes out, immediately starts saying... Well, I assume the issue with those of you who voted not guilty is, and she starts like, go on a spiel, and immediately one of the other jurors who voted uh, not guilty says, uh, you know, I'd be willing to change my vote if it would get us out of here sooner. And immediately one of the other ones who voted not guilty agrees and says that she would be willing to as well, and they, they sort of all agree that, you know, they're, they're gonna just all change their vote to guilty, and they'll get out of here. But, of course, Lois is outraged by this. And as they, you know, all start to leave, she says, No, she is now changing her vote to not guilty so that they have to stay there and actually go through this court case properly. And when we come back, Lois is, like, going through the details of the case with them, you know, sort of rehashing the, the, the trial, essentially, for them. Because apparently they weren't paying attention to the trial. Yeah, one of them even says, you know, there has to be some kind of basis for us to judge this on. And she says, there was. There was a trial. And evidence.
1: Yeah, but who really pays attention to those things, Jake? (laughs) I mean, not the jurors, clearly. Clearly. And
0: uh, when they ask Lois, you know, what does she want? Every time they, you know, try to vote, she always votes the opposite way of everyone else so that they have to keep doing this. ask her, what do you want? And she says she wants them to do their job. To take this case seriously, to talk it through, and reach a conclusion. With facts and reason. That's right. And she uh, starts talking about uh, testimony from a police officer involved in the case. And immediately one of the other jurors says, yeah, if you can believe him. And they, they sort of get sidetracked as they talk about how you... You know, they the, uh, don't trust cops, and how one of them has a neighbor who's a cop, and yeah, you know, he has a giant boat in his front yard. How do you think he affords that? And Lo- Lois, like, has to rein them in again. So, you know, they're, they're getting off track. This isn't about how they, they feel about you no know, police officers. It's about evaluating the evidence. That's right. Then, when we come back, they're once again taking a vote... And it seems like they're all voting guilty. It seems like the case is finally coming to an end. But the woman who, you know, wanted to change her vote earlier to leave early now uh, sort of of steps up and says she can't do it. She's voting not guilty because she read. The defendant was a uh, senior in the church choir and she just can't imagine a good church boy like that stealing a motorcycle. Then, Lois, uh, once again, you know, gets on her high horse and starts yelling at this lady about how, you know, that's, that's just her, you know, going off of her preconceptions it's not, you know, looking at the real evidence, like the, the all the other things that this kid has done, and the other lady says uh, she just doesn't want to send a nice boy like that to jail. Lois says it's for his own good, it'll do more good for him than three years of military school ever
1: could. Military school? I don't remember anything in the file about military school.
0: Yes, and Lois, like, frantically is, is, like, searching through all of the documents, looking for where it said that, you know, he spent three years in military school because she just knows that Francis spent three years in military school. Francis? Well, sort of dawns on Lois that she has, like, prejudged this kid because he clearly reminds her of Francis. And with this realization... She says that she thinks she needs to excuse herself from this trial, and immediately the the foreman, you know, takes a vote, and they unanimously vote her out with no hesitation. That seems fair. That seems fair. Yes, they they have all, uh, you know, pretty openly said that they they, uh, do not like Lois at this point.
1: But can you blame them? (laughs) Look, she's right. But also, I totally get why they cannot stand her. Yeah, for sure. She's that obnoxious type of right.
0: <laughs> yeah. And I mean, it, it is also a thing of, like, this, you know, not not to get uh, too far ahead of ourselves, but uh, for your uh, guessing game, your prediction, which was pretty spot on for this, is also, like, exactly what happens in Veronica Mars. It's because, like, every, like, jury plotline is based on 12 angry men.
1: Yeah. In fact, uh, we talked about Twelve Angry Men when in the class where we showed this clip.
0: <laughs> I don't doubt it, yeah, and, and that's kind of the, uh, how how that movie goes as well. Is there's like one juror who you know insists on the them doing you know the right thing, and uh, everyone hating them for it.
1: But I mean, that's the whole premise and archetype of this story: is that do people actually care about justice if it's not involving them? Right. They just care about their own lives. Which, to a sad, sad extent, is a hundred percent accurate, like yeah, there are people out there that that's not accurate for, and I wouldn't say that it's a hundred percent of people. I wouldn't even say that the jury system is is failed the way that they the the commentary from these types of movies and scenes is trying to imply, but for the, a vast majority of people would rather be. Spending time and invested in the things that directly affect them than doing any sort of civil service, even if the stakes are so high.
0: Right. And and I mean, like, I, I do understand why people are, like, annoyed by having to do jury duty, especially in, like, long extended cases, because it can be, like, a very disruptive thing for people's lives, but...
1: It's a hundred percent disruptive. I mean, you can get sequestered. Yeah, you can. You know, you can get subpoenaed in in Memphis. And <laughs> <laughs> sorry, lyrics, lyrics. Uh, but no, seriously though, yeah, no, hundred percent. You can you can get called up and you can get sequestered and and depending on the trial and the things that happen, it could be a very long time and it can absolutely be disruptive to your life. I understand that it's not convenient. I don't expect people to be happy about it. And I understand when people are grumpy and and things like that, and don't necessarily want to want to be there right, but i i don't I don't share the cynicism that says that everyone that's there doesn't care about the outcome and just wants to get it over with right, which is a common criticism of the jury system right i i just I don't find that to be accurate is all
0: yeah, I, I assume it's a fairly like case by case. Thing.
1: Yeah, which I mean, it's also why there's a jury of twelve peers instead of you know uh two or three or five because the more people, the more likely you are to find those one to two people who are willing to say like no, this is this isn't right. Sorry, right. I I could go on my high horse and we could talk about juries in the legal system for a long time. With me, this is something that I teach on a regular basis. This is something that I went to school for. This is something I have an interest in. (laughs) We should move on.
0: Fair enough. Well, after uh, excusing herself from that case, Lois goes to uh, the judge... And she she is requesting to be you know put on a different jury because she thinks she you know she could do she could really do it right this time she, if, she, if she just had another chance. And she basically annoys the judge into saying he'll see what he can do to get her on another jury. And the background, is, she's doing this, and she like thanks the judge, and you know goes off because her husband must be going crazy without her. Uh, Hal is being arrested.
1: Well, and I wonder why, Jake. <laughs> I wonder why. <laughs>
0: i will uh we'll explain why as we go over to the h-blot yeah which starts at home with lois ha- having failed to get out of jury duty hal is now like pestering her trying to figure out which case she's on and lois is insisting you know she can't tell him and hal is looking for you know signs of you know indirect ways that she's trying to communicate with him what case you know he's when he mentions something about a uh, someone being tall, for, for in a certain case, he says that she raised her eyebrow, and she says, no, I didn't.
1: Yeah, it's the uh, councilman. Yeah. He says, I always thought the councilman looked tall.
0: <laughs> and he, he you know, demands that you know, they've never kept secrets from each other in their marriage. Why should they start now? And Lois says, what are you talking about? I keep secrets from you all the time. God. <laughs> <laughs> And she gets up and she, you know, grabs her coffee cup and her, you know, plate of breakfast and takes them to the sink. And when she does, she leaves behind a coffee ring on the newspaper that she was reading, which happens to circle a headline about a local murder, which, of course, seeing this, Hal takes as a sign that Lois is on that trial. And begins looking deeper. He sure does. Because the, the next time we see him, he already has like a full cork board and he's laying out all the evidence that he's found. And uh, Abe comes in, you know, asking uh, what, what happened. He thought they were supposed to meet up for lunch today. And Hal apologizes and he says, you know, he's been distracted by this case that Lois is on the jury for. And. Uh, he, he says that uh, a lot of the evidence is being kept from the, the jury, and uh, she's gonna have to find uh, the, the wrong guy guilty w- with, you know, all the evidence that they won't let her see. And immediately, Abe is also super into this. Is apparently he's also been following this trial.
1: That's right, because all adults always follow trials.
0: I mean, I, I feel like this is foreshadowing for the the, the current popularity of. The true crime podcast craze and
1: documentary stuff. Uh, uh, Let's not talk about true. Look, true crime podcasts are the worst (laughs) as a criminal justice student and a person who loves this stuff and who should in theory, love true crime podcasts. You're all the worst. Okay. Now I realize you're all bigger podcasts than us. Half of you don't know what research is and you are telling people things that are not true, and you are talking and regurgitating things that are opinions from people who do not have the credentials to be making the type of opinions that you are quoting them for as fact. Like, ah, you can't go to my grandpa, for instance. Well, you definitely can't now, but anyways. You couldn't go to someone's random grandpa who has no experience and be like, so what do you think about O.J. Simpson? Well, you know... The glove didn't fit. Well, okay, thanks. Yeah, what the fuck does that have anything to do with anything? <laughs> Nothing. Just regurgitated stuff you heard from somebody. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. I, I mean, th- th- there are some that, that are, you know, like, better research, but, but there are also the, the ones that I, I've listened to where it's like, oh, this is this is someone reading directly from a Wikipedia page right now. <laughs>
1: Oh yeah, no dude, there are there are some good true crime podcasts out there, and those ones are pretty freaking good. I won't say phenomenal, because I think entertainment podcasters are better. Uh they just do it better. But uh but there are some good true crime podcasts out there. Um there's a couple that I've been like listening to an episode here or there, and and they're good. They do their research, they're they're real. Right. But the vast majority <laughs> Like, finding those, it's its a diamond in the rough. The rest of them are bored teenage girls or bored suburban dads who don't have enough lawns to mow or... Like Hal and
0: Abe. Like, yeah, yeah, like <laughs> Hal and Abe. Yeah, exactly. Oh, oh.
1: oh, dude. Oh, my God. There was one that I listened to the other day that, oh, my God, they 100% sounded like my dad if you just doubled him. <laughs> It was the worst thing I've ever heard in my life, and I'm I'm not trying to shit on other podcast. Like, it, I hope they see success. I hope they figure out a way to like make it. But like, and I know the audience. This is not going to do anything for you guys. But it if you'd ever heard my dad talk, hearing him at like talk to himself at the same time, the thought of it blew my like my head exploded. I could not tolerate it. It was awful.
0: Yeah, fair fair enough. All right. Well, uh, back to the episode. <laughs> Hal and Abe immediately like like start arguing as Hal believes that the victim's wife killed him, and Abe believes that his business partner killed him. That will all sort of be the, the center of their fight through the rest of the episode.
1: That's right. Because they're going to defend their theories now. Yes. With only circumstantial evidence.
0: And when Abe uh, says, "Well, then why did four witnesses say that they saw a woman or a man leaving the scene of the crime?" Hal takes out uh, two pictures. W- one of uh, you know the guy's wife, and one, the the same picture, but he's like taking a sharpie and drawn a beard on her. <laughs> he says, "A yeah. man
1: like this." <laughs> <laughs> And then Abe quickly points out That you just drew on that Anyone could do that Exactly anyone like her Yes and she uh, Worked for four years at a dinner Theater Dude that was the best line I
0: (laughs) It's I love this Fair enough it it is very good Then uh, as their Argument has progressed Abe uh, sort of Clearly, like, presented more evidence than, than Hal.
1: But, right.
0: But Hal insists that his gut says that it was the wife, and if, if he thinks otherwise, he, he can say that to this guy, and he points at his gut, and then Abe just, like, leans down to, like, eye level with Hal's gut and just yells, you're an idiot.
1: Oh, dude, that was so... F- I fucking love this. <laughs> it's just, it's such a... It's such a guy arguing thing, you know, mm-hmm. like, especially for best friends, like, uh, it, it reminded me of a ton of our arguments, you know,
0: like, just for sure. Th- this, this moment in particular, I was like, oh, th- this, if David and I did a, a shitty true crime podcast, this is what it would be.
1: <laughs> oh, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. Cause at some point I would just stop with the research on whatever case it is. Because I I would stop caring. Uh-huh. And yeah, it would devolve into this. You would be talking about some dude's history professor, and I'd be like, doesn't matter. My gut says no. Instead of pinky in the brain, we could be pinky in the gut. <laughs> <laughs> uh.
0: Uh, yeah, there's definitely no brain in our scenario. <laughs> That's 100% true.
1: <laughs>
0: but, but then the final scene with the two is they go t- to the, the scene of where the body was found, and initially it's just Abe standing there with a stopwatch, and Hal comes running in, you know, out of breath, When Abe tells him the time, he says, see, it was possible for the wife to run from home to here, and that still leaves her two minutes to stab him, cut his head off, uh, and... Uh, and get to the party. Yes, get to the party. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, Abe is still unconvinced. He's, you know, pointing out that, uh, that that how did the other guy get covered in blood? Which Hal says clearly she, you know, on the way to the party, uh, took her suit off and rubbed it on him while he was unconscious. (laughs) And Abe says, and how do you explain, uh, the, the, the downward motion of the stabbing? You know, she, she was shorter than him and Hal says, uh... You know, maybe oh, she
1: No no. We can't we can't gloss over the heights. Did you hear the difference in height?
0: Did not register though. No.
1: Okay. I want you to understand how, how rare it is for someone to be six four. Like, obviously it happens. Like there's plenty of people, but it is not a super con Like that is well above average for a man. He says that he is six four and she is five eight. Yeah. This is important. Because now remember <laughs> remember what Hal's theory is that, that she climbed not something he uses an item in particular. Well a uh, milk crate, yes a uh, milk crate that is not enough that is not enough difference. That doesn't put you up enough to to grab his lapels and stab at a downward angle like that just saying, boom, you got true crime, Hal
0: <laughs>
1: How does it feel
0: I mean, it depends on where the stab wounds are, David.
1: Well, no, they already show you that high clavicle. Look, I paid a lot of attention to this,
0: Jake. Uh, I don't, I don't know. I think it's possible. I think we need to reenact this scene, David.
1: <laughs> I hate you. I hate you so
0: much. <laughs> uh, <laughs> which uh, is, of course, what Hal does, as he has brought a kitchen knife with him, and he, you know, finding a uh, milk crate for you know this woman to have potentially stood on. He gets on it and, you know, takes the knife and is demonstrating how she could have stabbed her husband. By almost stabbing Abe. And when he does, a woman screams in the distance. (laughs) And they both sort of get a look of realization on their faces as as they realize what they're doing. And Hal, like, throws the knife down and they both just take off running. Yep. (laughs) And and then, of course, the... the Real ending we've already covered is, you know, Hal in the courthouse, in
1: handcuffs, being (laughs) led away in the background while Lois talks to the judge. Uh, Right. (laughs) Yeah. And the cop says something about, I think it was a mistrial. Yeah. The the, the judge says that the reason he can't get Lois on a trial right now is because, you
0: know, there there was a mistrial and it's really, you know, thrown everything (laughs) in the system out of whack. And that wraps the episode up. So let's go to our awards. Awards. And we will start with our Roller Skating Keen Award. Our award for the best visual moment. Now, what did you give your Roller Skating Keen Award, David?
1: So there were a couple moments, but the one that stood uh, head and shoulders... Above everything else, or I guess below, was Abe leaning over to talk to Hal's stomach after he tells him to talk to his gut and him just yelling at his stomach, You're an idiot. <laughs> this scene was hilarious to me. I could not get over it. So I just I love the the idea of Abe actually physically bending over to talk to Hal's gut. It's just, I I I absolutely love this scene. It's hilarious. Because Abe's got that, like, snarky, condescending uh, face on, you know? Yeah. Uh,
0: And you you know what else this scene uh, is, David? What's that? It's uh, Abe confirming that he's team hashtag tummy talk. Oh, my God.
1: (laughs) No. Jake, why do you have to ruin everything? (laughs) It's
0: what I do, David. It's what I do. (laughs) Clearly. (laughs) I'm the best at what I do. What I do ain't pretty. Uh, I also gave my roller skating King awards to a Hal and Aid moment, though I gave it to a different one. I gave it to them uh, recreating the murder scene. That's fair. That's fair. That was a really good scene. The, like, escalation of, you know, Hal, like, showing up, you know, out of breath, having run over, and just pulling the knife out of his jacket that he brought with him, clearly oh, to bro. demonstrate these points, and... That then it, you know, finally all coming together <laughs> with him, like, holding the knife over Abe. <laughs> so good. But moving on to our next award, we have the Hot Dog with Mustard on It Award, the award for the best line. What did you give that award to?
1: This was another one where I had multiple, but since I'm going first, I'm going to take my primary pick, which is Now I Get to Die in a Sewer, a Perfect End to a Crappy Life. I love Dewey. <laughs> It's just, it's so funny, because he delivers it so seriously, and just so, like, he is just convinced. He's dying in that sewer. There's no other way. Yep. <laughs> uh, uh, my my first
0: choice for this was uh, what, well, the one that you uh, took for your opening line, which also came from a very cynical Dewey. It's true. Uh, but since you used that for that, I'll take my backup, which is... Stevie's line when Malcolm says you've never even been with a girl and Stevie just says I have a note from my doctor
1: (laughs) I can get a doctor if I wanted to what does
0: that even mean It's just such a Krell Boyne line (laughs) Oh
1: god yeah it is
0: It's not even like a Stevie specific line it's one that could just as easily come from or Lloyd Right Well, moving on to our next award, who did you have as your favorite character for this episode?
1: My favorite character is Dewey. Okay. I love just his his pure excitement to be part of this tradition and to do stuff with his brothers, and then his his cynicism when he gets lost and they've let him down again. He's really growing up and, and experiencing life And, uh, also, he's just, also, he saves the snake and calms the snake down and handles the snake just fine. So, good guy Dewey, saving a snake, being brave, and just still having wonder and excitement for life. Man, I wish I knew what that was like.
0: Uh, You know who else has some wonder and excitement in this episode, David? Oh, no. My favorite character, Hal.
1: (laughs) Okay, that's fair. That's fair. I thought you were going a different way with that. Thank God. (laughs) Uh, Hal is pretty great. Uh, he was. He, I almost picked Hal.
0: Yeah, I, I loved him just getting super wrapped up in this trial, and, and I especially love, you know, that 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 one scene of him with Lois, just like reading into everything, looking for, you know, <laughs> these the signs and signals. No, that's fair. That's fair.
1: <laughs> oh, it's so good.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I I like that. You know, now that they they've sort of done a better job of establishing his friend group and in particular his friendship with Abe. It's very nice to see him, you know, have these sort of wacky plot lines, but have, you know, someone there with him to go through these things. Yeah. And who did you give your Cloris Leachman Award to? Your award for the best acting.
1: Um, I actually gave it to Jane Kesmeric. Okay. As much as Dewey is my favorite character and, well, we'll talk about my favorite plot line in a minute, but, uh, I like this episode, and I like her... I've said it a million times. I love, like, yelly, forceful Lois. I like it when you get to see Lois yelly for a cause. And I just... I love the smugness on her face. I love the the look of realization that she does when she realizes that she's talking about Francis when Francis is not involved, which, by the way, shows that she's uh, more capable of introspection than Malcolm. I love her performance. I think that she did an excellent job in conveying sort of that that shock in that moment. It it didn't feel super cartoony and over the top like it sometimes does. Yeah. So yeah, that's why I gave it to her.
0: Okay. Fair enough. I I, I strongly considered her for this, but I ended up giving mine to Eric Beresolivan for a lot of the reasons that you gave for him. For, uh, Dewey being your favorite character for the episode, getting to see, uh, both, like, the, you know, just super excited, like, little kid brother Dewey, and then also getting to see the, like, cynical, like, starting to, you know, lose all of that childhood wonder Dewey as well, and just that he did so well with both of them is what prompted me to give him the award. Right. Uh, and which of the plot lines did you give the A-plot of your heart?
1: Oh, the H-plot. All the way. The H-plot is so good. It made me want a sketch show that's just Abe and Hal. Not not Brian Cranston, and <laughs> I can't remember the other guy's name. Abe and Hal making fun of true crime podcasts, you know, some 30 years in the future. Uh, right. <laughs> that's the Malcolm in the Middle spinoff that I want. Okay. I can get behind that. Who couldn't? It's perfect. <laughs> <laughs>
0: it, it was very good, but I actually didn't give it the A plot of my heart. Wow. Okay. Uh, As well, uh, I thought Hal was the best individual character. The, the plot line uh, that just was the funniest to me was the, the F plot.
1: Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, wow. it hasn't
0: hasn't happened a lot uh, in this season with, with the you no know, Alaska stuff. But I, I really like this one. I I think the like Alaska stuff works best when it sort of leans into its setting. Uh,
1: it, it's sort yeah, of that's that, fair. Uh,
0: like very Letterkenny esque brand of comedy.
1: Yeah, no, I I get that. Yeah, I guess I maybe that's why it didn't hit as hard with me. Is I think Letterkenny did it better. True, but like removing the fact that you know the that thing 20 years later happened yeah no it, it's it, it is pretty good i'll give you that i do like it i like it a lot yeah and then i also
0: i think it may also just be like a a matter of it being like oh this is an f-plot that's uh actually good after a lot of pretty mediocre ones this season that's fair
1: yeah there were not a lot of good ones
0: yep so i gave it to the f-plot all right. That brings us to one that uh, I-, I know you uh, have have an interesting take on, so I'll go ahead and go first. <laughs> uh, but for the OK Boomer Award, the award that sets the episode firmly within its time of release, I chose Frampton Comes Alive not as an album, but as a punchline through pure happenstance. I, I happen to be rewatching King of the Hill uh, right now. And the, the same day that I initially watched this episode, because I always watch them twice, I, I watched it like a little bit before bed, and then when I went to, you know, go to bed, I, I turned on King of the Hill. And I happened to watch a joke with almost an identical joke about that album. <laughs> like, just of it being, like, the quintessential dad rock album. It was, like, in the late 70s Like, the number one selling live album And, like, one of just the best selling albums of all time Right King of the Hill makes the joke in uh, 1997 in season 2 Actually very similar to the Molly Hatchet joke here They they find some graffiti in the caves About Franton Comes Alive And and Uh don't understand what it means And then uh, before that uh, It's also a joke in Wayne's World 2 Oh my god. Uh when uh Wayne and uh uh fuck what, what is her name in that uh uh Cassandra are are like uh c- comparing album collections. Wayne makes a joke about it uh being uh legally I think he says it's legally required uh for every kid in the suburbs to own Frampton Comes Alive. That seems real. But but uh, oh. just like hap- just happening to watch this episode of Malcolm in the Middle and that episode of King of the Hill back I to see. back, and then also remembering that it was a joke in Wayne's World, so that immediately <laughs> made made me realize oh that this album is like a consistent punchline through the '90s and 2000s in a like bizarrely similar way like every time. Uh, but what did you have for your OK Boomer award, David?
1: Well, Jake, look. This is going to be a, a trek, a, a journey, if you will, because uh, I could have chosen an easy thing. However, in the F-plot, something caught my eye in the background. And at first glance, it looks like a six-pack of Diet Cokes. Now, I know and you know that generally they're very careful to avoid direct product placement like that, um, especially on TV shows. And usually they have like fake props with fake brands on it or something like that, so it's not directly recognizable, right? Yeah. Well, at first, it looks so much like it. I had to go, and I had to look up all the retro cans. And it's very close to a retro can. But what bothered me is the text on top of what would be where it said Coke, where, in other words, the text for diet, was in the wrong spot. It was in the middle. Uh, it wasn't at the end of the co- word Coke. It wasn't at the beginning. And I could find all of those cans. So I had to keep going. And I had to keep digging. Because this can surely exists. And I could clearly read what I... I, I thought I could clearly read the word Coke. So I rewatched the scene. God, what, six times, Jake, probably? Probably. And I continued to watch it. And I continued to research. And while well, it just so happens... and And there was a lot of research in between this. And a lot of other rabbit trails that this took me down okay but i'm trying to be direct for the listeners but as i as i'm researching it i I, well you know what no we're gonna go down one of the rabbit trails okay (laughs) i'm i'm not able to find this diet coke can i cannot find it and so i i give up for a second and i think holy shit okay they just actually made like a fake diet coke look alike for this scene then i noticed that they have another and this one clearly has to be fake the beer that they're drinking, the canned beer, is Buchanan's, uh, which, by the way, the only alcohol that you can find that's labeled uh, that's uh, Buchanan's is a whiskey. So I started looking up Buchanan's beer, and I started looking up the year and things like that. Well, in the colors that are used for the main emblem on the beer can is the Atlanta Falcons. And during this time, Buchanan is playing as, I believe, number thirty-six. I'd have to look it up again. Uh, I have forgotten this. Uh, For the Atlanta Falcons. And this is 2002, which is right in the middle of his run. Uh, He's made a name for himself already. And uh, yeah. So I'm pretty sure that someone in a props department was a football fan and made Buchanan's Falcon beer (laughs) for this scene. But that was just a rabbit trail that I went down. In the process of doing this... I continued to read through Coca-Cola's entire list, by the way, which is a lot, of brand uh, portfolio, and I run across an interesting little thing. Coca-Cola released a Israeli version of the can, and it was in Hebrew, and it was just Diet Coke. Now, normally this would not mean anything to our OK Boomer Award because Diet Coke has been out for years and the Israeli Diet Coke had been out for years. However, you couldn't buy it in the US except for for a short period of time between 1999 and 2001. And the section where it says Diet on the Israeli Coca-Cola can is directly in the middle of the word Coke, um, or what would be the word Coke, but it's in Hebrew, which is exactly what you see sitting on that shelf. So, I am 98% certain that they have an Israeli Diet Coke six-pack sitting on the shelf behind them in the shack for, for the F-plot.
0: Okay. <laughs> uh, but, David, did you know that, that if you... Uh take the the Hebrew letters that spell out that Diet Coke and and you, you know, take them and you assign them to their uh, numerical equivalent that it actually comes out as 42 if you add them all together which is also the number of Buchanan.
1: (laughs) No, it's not. He's like 36. But also no, stop. Stop. I hate you. No numbers. No, no, no. No, no. Look. It was already an hour for me to find all the bullshit that I already came up with. Don't add on to it. Don't ruin this shit, okay? I already went on a deep dive going insane because I couldn't figure out why the Diet Coke didn't look right.
0: <laughs> oh, no, no, no. That, that, that's, that, that's very fair, David. Uh, but, like, the, the entire time you're going through that, it's it's very similar to that Coen brother scene I was talking about from A Serious Man earlier. <laughs> just, like, all about this Jewish dentist, like, looking for meaning and, like, Hebrew symbols he finds in one of his patient's teeth. Yeah. <laughs> like, the, and then you brought up, like, the specific number for the guy, and then you brought up it being in Hebrew. It, it just fits out so well. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't even know.
1: No, I had no idea. <laughs> I hate it. I hate it here. Uh, But yeah, so that's my OK Boomer award. It goes to the uh, Israeli Coca-Cola can. Diet Coca-Cola can.
0: Uh, Okay. Good OK Boomer award, David. I like it.
1: Thanks, Jake. God, I hope I'm right. (laughs) (laughs) The amount of research I did for me to be wrong, I will cry.
0: Oh, that just makes me hope that you're wrong, David. (laughs) I know. <laughs> okay, well, that just leaves our shittiest and least shitty kid awards. Who did you give your least shitty kid award to? Uh,
1: Dewey, correct. obviously.
0: That, that is the correct yeah. answer. To that. Of course it is. And I figured we would be uh, in alignment on that, because as you were describing why Dewey was your favorite character, and uh, covered a lot <laughs> of why he's least shitty kid.
1: Yeah, no, 100%. And if nothing else... He saved the snake and handled the snake and played well with the with the snake. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like, save the animal, bam, instant points. Like,
0: yeah, and he you know tried to point out uh, why Reese, Stevie, and Malcolm are all you know so so shitty with women, and it's not his sure fault. They immediately all turn into incels when he did.
1: Yeah, no, no, that's that's all on them for sure.
0: And who did you have as shittiest kid? Malcolm. Okay.
1: Because while while Reese is also shitty, and Stevie's also shitty, Stevie's out of the running because mm-hmm. I'm not allowed to pick him, while Reese does say some fucked up shit, I... And, and again, this one is way more personal than than a rational argument, but, like, being called a joke is probably one of the harshest insults that, like to me is one of the worst things you can say to someone and for Malcolm to deliver it like so deadpan and so sincere there to Reese and directly tell him you're a joke. Like that is, that is one of the biggest insults in the world to me. So Mm -hmm. like pretty much it goes like liar, thief, joke. Like those are the top, like you can call me a motherfucker all you want. You can call me some things I won't repeat on the podcast all you want, but like, if you legitimately think I'm a liar, a thief or a joke, like let's fucking go. And the way he says it, it's just so cold. See, I aspire to be a joke, David. Yeah, but th- that's different <laughs> though. That's different though. Like but cuz to you and when you even when you say the word joke, it doesn't sound like someone who's calling someone yeah. like a joke, like wasted existence. You're clearly talking about like something that makes people laugh and you know, like a jester or something, even that, like being called a jester or something like that doesn't bother me because, okay, great. I make an ass of myself to make other people laugh. Yes. Literally. Yes. I'm fine with that. (laughs) But I don't know the way a lot of people use the word joke in the way that it's said, it's more like waste of space or like useless. And oh, I can't fucking stand that.
0: Yeah. Fair enough. I suppose. But, uh, yeah, you know what? That's not as bad as David. What's that? Is willfully feeding someone to a bear. Which is why my shittiest kid of the episode was actually Francis.
1: Okay. Because okay.
0: W- while Malcolm and Reese definitely very shitty this episode, uh neither of them fed their friends to a bear.
1: Counterpoint. He volunteered. It was a vote. There were four votes. They tricked him into it. No, no. He raised his hand. He voted. He <laughs> was he was of sound mind, legally mm, speaking. It I is don't know not about on that. Francis. <laughs> That was a legal vote, Jake. Mm. It was a legal vote.
0: No, no, no. <laughs> it was the shittiest thing to do. Terrible job. They they tricked the old man who was clearly not all there. He was waiting for the bear to fly away earlier.
1: Terrible job, Francis. Shittiest kid. Look, he got he got what he deserved. I get what you're saying, and if this were if that were the case, where he actually abandoned his friend to the bear, then you know, I would agree with you. But it. Clearly his friend volunteered to go into action and try to go get help for, for everybody. And he's a hero, and the vote was fair and legal. So we have to respect the results of the vote.
0: <laughs> <laughs> or are you telling me that you want to reach out here? <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah, I went there. You're right. I
1: put I put you on that side if you argue with me. You're welcome. Wow wow
0: you you know what you know what david i do demand a recount
1: you would wouldn't you (laughs) wouldn't you just accept it you lost okay the vote was fair it wasn't rigged
0: i don't know i've I've seen some things on facebook to say otherwise david i've seen some you know stuff on
1: facebook about how pete's votes were doctored (laughs) oh my god yeah okay let me tell you look all of the votes were counted okay (laughs) Oh, Oh, my God.
0: Okay, well, uh, we we, we need to uh, get moving on. I I need to go get some uh, horse medicine. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, oh my God. (laughs) Ah, Jake. You're the worst. (laughs) Okay, well, that wraps up our awards. Uh, we have a couple segments left, starting with the Cranston Connection, which is David's job this week.
1: Yes. Well, so interestingly enough, we see the first creation of true creation and full foundation of the altar that is Walter White here. We see the creation of his inability to function without a partner in this episode. Uh-huh. Um, This sort of turmoil with Abe and being able to access his alter's vicious uh, side to craft this puzzle and solve this issue has cemented in him the need for someone who he feels superior to and who he feels that he can belittle and manipulate in order to solve puzzles for himself and make things fit within his narrative, which we see come to full fruition with Walter White and Jesse Pinkman. However, it very clearly started with uh, Hal and Abe.
0: Okay, interesting. Uh, n- not not the uh, direction I thought you were going to go. I like oh, it. I know. Uh, Hal's like perception of what happened with this murder is very in line with, with like, what Walt would actually do. <laughs>
1: Oh, God, yeah, it is.
0: <laughs> it's like It's like, it's impossible that a person would do all of this insane stuff in this short amount of time to, you know, in order to frame this other person. You know. It just seems impossible that there would be this many intricate steps. And that's like right. all Breaking Bad is. <laughs> <laughs> it's just that over and over
1: <laughs> he makes every plan more complicated <laughs>
0: yep. okay well let's go to our last segment David's guessing game oh joy uh, which, your, your prediction for this week, you pretty much nailed. Uh, which, again, you you did have the advantage of having seen the, you know, main plot line before. Correct. And that you correctly predicted that Lois would be summoned to jury duty, and that she would be the only one to take it seriously, which would annoy the other jurors and sort of turn them against her. And that she would make them stay and, like, actually deliberate the case instead of just half-assing it. And, you know, she would very emphatically demand fairness and abiding by the rules and all of that stuff. And that eventually the other jurors would, you know, come around and they would take the case seriously. Which is all exactly what happened. So I had to give you 100%. Awesome. But what do you think happens next week in Clicks, Spelled with a Q. Oh,
1: okay. (laughs) I was literally about to ask. I think that we're going to go back to school. I think we're going to see some uh more like junior high and high school prep stuff. Uh maybe it'll involve the Krellboins. and we're going to see some, you know, like the jocks and and the the goth kids and the e- well, wait, we're in 2002. Uh yeah, this is goths, emo's haven't really hit the scene yet. Scene hasn't hit yet either. Mm. Maybe some punks. You know, and I think it's going to deal with high school cliques.
0: Okay, for I I think emo is, like I think this is, like, the the start of the emo stuff would be, like, 2002.
1: Yeah, but it wasn't really, like, a popular click enough to make it in a pop culture by 2002. Maybe. I I genuinely
0: don't remember, so I'm genuinely trying to remember. (laughs) Okay, so you're going uh, jocks, goths, and who else did you say?
1: I didn't. I just said the typical, like, high school. Like, I'm sure there's going to be Mean Girls or or some variation thereof, you know? There better be. But, yeah, I feel like... Yeah. Might be some punks, but I don't know. Like it's kind of the end of punk as like a pop culture thing, though I I don't know. Those those are the ones that I'm I'm feel comfortable enough will be there is is Jocks, some form of mean girl, Goss and uh there's gotta be another group, but I don't know what they're gonna use. Okay. And I don't know if it's gonna be like a class president situation, but probably not. I think it's probably just gonna be Another Malcolm in the Middle just shit fest at the school. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> Just random shit. I don't know if... Like, there's going to be obviously a plot line, but, like, I can't even venture a fucking guess. But just basing it off of the fact that it's clicks, we haven't seen the krellboyns or the school in a while. You know, they probably want to make use of those actors again. So, yeah, I, I would imagine we're probably going to see the krellboyns We're probably going to go back to school, and we're probably going to be... Revolving around, you know, like the junior high high school clicks.
0: Okay. Sounds good. Well that wraps this episode up. Thank you for listening. If you would like to get in touch with us, you can reach us by email where we are lifeisunfairpod at gmail.com, or on Twitter where we are unfair underscore podcast, which is also where we put up our weekly shittiest and least shitty kid polls.
1: And if you enjoy the banter back and forth and want to join us live, head on over to twitch.tv slash lpdeathray, where we play video games and interact with our chat and have conversations every evening. Also, don't forget to join us November 6th, where we will be raising money for the Denver Children's Miracle Network Hospital. We do an event called Extra Life, it is a ton of fun. We stream video games, we have chats with other creators and a lot of fun different activities and ways for people to get rewards for donating and helping us raise money.
0: Thanks for listening, and remember, life is unfair. That was a very loud fart noise.